You're raised as an athlete to fight back. So why all of a sudden, when you retire, do you stop the good fight? This is Finding Center with Nick Hardwick. I'm Nick Hardwick. I am husband to Jamie Hardwick. I am father of Teddy and Hudson, six and four-year-old boys. I'm a former NFL center. I played 11 years for the San Diego Chargers, five-time team captain. I retired in 2014 after the 2014 season. 11 years was more than enough wear and tear on the body. I immediately got into broadcasting, uh, calling Charger games for three years before stepping down to do local sports talk radio. And now I'm a gym owner at Renegade Fit Camp. We're on two locations and rapidly expanding. I work out, I I should say I train rather than work out. I, I train hard every day for the body because I like to train. It's just part of who I've become over the years playing professional sports. I'm a very physical human being and I rely on that for my mental health, for my physical health and for overall happiness. And as part of that, I have to take care of my body from the inside out with a good dose of protein every day. I like good healthy fats and Bubs is a big part of my daily routine. Every single day, I don't usually eat until noon because I wake up at 3.30, I hit that brew button on the coffee machine, I wait till the pot is made, pour myself a nice cup, two scoops of the collagen protein, one heaping scoop of the MCT oil powder, which I have to say is absolutely the best product on the market. It's ridiculously good. But that fuels me from work from 6 to 9 a.m. when I get off of the radio. I go straight from there immediately to Renegade Fit Camp, get my workout in, and I don't eat again until noon. And I never feel hungry, and this is a big part of the reason why. Joining us today on the Finding Center podcast is Dr. Kirk Parsley. Doc is a Navy SEAL, turned MD, turned doctor to the Navy SEALs, and is now best known as a world-leading performance sleep doctor. Tons of information can be found on him at docparsley.com, including his sleep remedy, which he put me on years ago. So today we're going to take a deep dive into hormone replacement therapy with Doc Parsley's real specialty being endocrinology. When is the right time, if ever, for me? What are the potential risks associated? Do athletes and former military members potentially have a greater need for this therapy? And when, if ever, should females consider hormone replacement therapy? All of that and a lot more with Dr. Parsley coming up. Doc Parsley, what's happening? <laughs> Not much, man. Just living the repeat, I think. Life's, <laughs> <laughs> life's good in 2020? Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, big plans? No, no. Uh, same old stuff, you know. Keep plugging along. Better, better, bigger, better, faster, stronger, smarter, whatever I'm already doing. One day better. Yeah, one yeah. day better. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I always say I'm not as good today as I will be tomorrow. Perfect. Kind of a family motto here. I've been mm. trying to beat it into my boys' heads. Yeah. I'm not as good today as I will be tomorrow. Yeah. So just maybe it, just it allows, beat them more. Beat them, yes. Yeah. It allows for errors in the day. <laughs> I know I'm going to fail today, but I'm going to get up tomorrow, and I'm going to work, and I'm going to strive, and I'm going to be a little bit better. Yeah. Just and, a little bit. And marginally. when you fall down today, you can just go, ah, it's not a big deal. No big deal. Tomorrow I'll be able to You wait it. till tomorrow. Yeah, you wait it's till tomorrow. It's like an old yeah. school Cubs fan. Right. It's like, wait till next year. <laughs> or I guess now it's like a new Charger fan. It's yeah. Like, wait, till, <laughs> wait till next year. Yeah. I, I get tons of questions from my former <laughs> football friends, civilians who are now entering their 40s, 50s, considering getting on hormone replacement 
replacement therapy. Yep. What do people need to know about HRT? Well, I mean, I think the, the most important thing to know about HRT is that the majority of people don't, the majority of doctors or healthcare providers doing it. And, and I don't, I wouldn't, I don't have the statistic, but from my personal experience, um, and working with other doctors and with my clients is the majority of healthcare providers don't really know what they're doing with that. Um, <clears throat> It, it's a much more complex system than people give it credit for. So, I mean, you see, you know, silly commercials on television about low T and, you know, ask your, you go ask your doctor if you might need testosterone or something. Yeah. I mean, your doctor knows enough to know what testosterone is and maybe good, you know, or maybe he's one of these docs who's taking a weekend course or she, and it's like, oh yeah, you know, just give him testosterone. Well, it doesn't exist in isolation, right? I mean, there's, you know, testosterone is formed from cholesterol. There's about 27 steps in between testosterone and, and cholesterol. And a lot of those are metabolically active. So you can't just give one end product and you're there, done, right? And then, you know, your, te- your testosterone affects every other hormone. So your testosterone affects what it, you know, what it changes into. So it aromatizes into estrogen, estradiol. It, you know, it, it, uh, with the, it has an enzymatic reaction where it can become dihydrotestosterone, which is super anabolic to everything except muscles, and it's what causes bad skin and hair loss and you know, uh, prostate enlargement and the kind of the negative side effects of having testosterone. Um, and all of that stuff has to be balanced. And um, so when I work, you know, when I've worked with people and I learned, um, yeah, I learned hormone replacement therapy from a lot of different docs, but... Um, the first guy that I worked with was, is a guy named, uh, Dr. Edward Lichten. And he, he was a obstetrician gynecologist who had been doing female hormone replacement for 40 some odd years. So he was in his, uh, mid to late sixties probably when I met him. And <coughs> about 20 years before that, <coughs> sorry about that, uh, about 20 deal. years before I met him, his, uh, one of his clients brought in she was feeling so good on her hormone replacement therapy. She said, can you do something with my husband? She brought her husband in and he was like, I, I don't know. So, so he started doing testosterone replacement way before anybody else did, but he, he's a very, uh, um, a very, I, I guess, sort of research oriented guy. So he just went full retard studying and studying and studying before he did any of this. And so he had been doing it, you know, probably 20 years before Cynogenics and those guys kind of became the, the first guys to do that. Um, so I trained with him and, uh, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of how I think about it is, is based off of, you know, working with him and when, and, you know, and I went and trained with all these other fly by night industries who give certifications and hormone replacement therapy. And it was, it was just drastically incomplete. Um, and, you know, it, it, I I think of it a lot like nutrition, right? If somebody eats McDonald's every day, and they and they go talk to somebody about cleaning up their diet, and they start eating a mediocre instead of a terrible diet, they feel better, and they're like, "Ah, oh, totally worked for me." It didn't. But what if you actually ate a good diet? You know, um, so you, you know, going from you know, going from crap to mediocre is pretty easy. Right. <laughs> and, and a lot of, a lot of people, by the time they go see their doctors for hormone replacement therapy, they're, they're already feeling like crap. So, you know, doing anything is going to get them up to mediocre and they go, yeah, it, you know, it's usually That's good enough. Yeah. It's usually like the first six months, it's a big transformation for them. I'm like, man, I feel so much better. And then they kind of plateau out like, yeah, I mean, still feel better than I felt then, but it's not really going anywhere from here. 
Um, and it really shouldn't be that way. I mean, if you, you know, obviously we've all damaged our bodies, so there's going to be some limitations as to how agile and rubber you're going to feel. Right. You know, like you're not going to be 19 again. You're not going to be able to, like, wreck a skateboard in the street and get up and... Yeah, I wasn't planning <laughs> on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, like, um, but, you know, but, you know, as far as your physiology, if you, you know, if you replace all the hormones to a, a youthful level you know, what's, why would you really be that difference? I mean, there, you know, there's some DNA aging and some cellular aging and those types of things exist, but those aren't that perceptible probably until, you know, sixties and seventies and things like that. So if people out there are thinking about this, who should they go to? Who's, who's qualified, who's unqualified to put you on a high, on a high level program? Wow. Probably, probably I, I should I should have saw that one coming. Probably more who's qualified than who's unqualified. Cause I'm assuming a decent amount of people are unqualified. Yeah. Um, Even your MD. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess I would, uh, I would just do my due diligence and find somebody who, um, who probably just does that or that's their sole focus like it's or it's a it's at least a major part of their practice um what you see a lot with these um little strip mall clinics is these are like er doctors and stuff who are just like picking up an extra shift they go out and they they learn you know they go get their certification and then they just they do shifts in this place you know um you know it's not their profession they don't have a passion for it um so it's usually it's usually going to be somebody who's not a traditional medical person like um and and this is observation there's no cause and effect here this is just purely my observation it uh, it's going to be somebody who's really heavily invested in alternative plans so yeah you know somebody probably into functional medicine integrative medicine um uh you know a lot of naturopaths do it um, I don't know where all states they're allowed to do it in. There's a really good naturopath out here in La Jolla <coughs> that I know. Uh, his, his, well, I mean, it, it's I guess it's arrogant to say he's really good. I mean, his, his protocols are a lot like mine, so okay. I, I feel like he's really good. Good. Uh, and when I met him and we started talking. Who's uh, that? Uh, his name is uh, Bronner Handwerker. Yes. You know him? Yes. Yeah. So uh, he, so you know, he and I met at a symposium five or six years ago. Well, probably longer than that at this point, eight years ago maybe. And, um, and found out we were both in San Diego and we just started talking about hormones and turns out, you know, there's about 90% overlap with what he does and I do. And he learned it from a totally different source and comes at it from a different angle and came to the same conclusions, which is sort of validating for me. And that's through a lot, I'm assuming, trial and error with patients and figuring out what's working and what's not working. Right. And you have to have, I mean, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it is just based on your patient population so some some patients are really good and that um you know they stick with they do exactly what you tell them to and they and they give you a lot of feedback some patients just take whatever you give them and they kind of do that and then you don't hear from them again until the next time they come in usually with a problem um so he uh i mean i won't say anything about this patient population is who they are but he he works with a lot of really motivated guys how do I know when it's time to get on? Um, that, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good question. I think. Or I guess what should go into the decision? Well, I mean, so I, I would say if you're, if you're under 40, um, well, I mean, it, it's different. If you're a professional athlete, if you're like, 
you know, w- one of the things that I found when, when I was working with the SEALs is they all had terrible hormones. Uh, all their anabolic hormones were really low. All their catabolic hormones were really high. And some of these guys are only in their late 20s and early 30s. I think that's exceptional. I mean, those are people who are really beating themselves. But, you know, right. NFL athletes would probably fall into that. I mean, I, I remember doing blood on blood work on you and, yes. and going, Jesus, like you, <laughs> you don't have any testosterone. How are you how, so big and strong? How's <laughs> this working? <laughs> yeah. Willpower. Yeah. Um, and so uh, obviously at that point, you you felt like you would have needed that and it just wasn't an option for yes. you in your career because it was banned by Couldn't. your job. Can't right? do anything. So you weren't allowed to do mm-hmm. that. Which was tragic. I mean, I was I was so upset about that whole thing. I'm going, man, you're 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 killing this guy so that he can be an entertainer, you know, and play yes. a game. I mean, that just seemed that seemed ridiculous to me. But I understand why they have to do what they do. Of course. Um, yeah, because then it's like it's a slippery slope. You start doing this guy, and then you know, uh, it's an it, arms race, right? right? One guy does it. The backup has to do it. He does yeah, more. Right. The defensive line has to right. do it to be able to compete. And then it's just like you've got a bunch of yeah, monsters you, yeah, out there running around. Yeah, they have a bunch of around. bulls on the field. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A bunch right. of myostatin knockout bulls. It, then it probably other. looks like the 80s in the NFL. <laughs> I think 1987 was when they first started testing. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I, I guess I never thought of that, but when I was a kid, they didn't test. You know, yeah. I would I would have been 17 when they started testing. So here's, here's a big thing, and this is partly we learned this during last season of the Finding Center podcast. Uh, there was a huge Harvard – former football player health study done and it directly linked players to lower testosterone, erectile dysfunction to concussive episodes. So studies of military vets, boxers, and even civilians with concussive episodes showed similar results. Right. What's the theory on that? Um, Well, I mean, there, there's different regions of the brain being affected, but the, the gist of it, um, so, so the, mili- the military is twofold, military, law enforcement, and, the, and even some athletes. Um, you know, like I've, I've done a lot of sleep consulting for professional baseball teams because they, ha- they travel so much. And so it's what a wonky right. schedule they have playing so, late at night. Right. So when you, when you start running into sleep deprivation, you run into hormonal dysregulation as well. Um, I don't think it's as big of a problem for the NFL. It's not, no. Um, but so though – yeah, th- that's one aspect of it. It's a big aspect of it in military and law enforcement because you have shift workers that are working, you know, from midnight to 8 a.m. every single night of their life. Like they do that for 20 years. That's really bad for their health, right? Because they're even if they're getting adequate sleep, they're getting it at the wrong time of the day, and and it's it's not doesn't have the same benefit. So that's causing their anabolic hormones to be low. <clears throat> but also, what most people don't realize is that. Um, I mean, all of your hormonal regulation. So, how much, how much of any hormone you have is regulated by your brain. And so, when you start inflaming the brain, you start interfering with the pathways that are doing the sensing and the pathways that are doing the responsing or the responsive aspect to the sense, you know, to the uh, sensing of the hormones. So, um, if you if you have a concussion. It, that leads to inflammation, right? Um, and then that inflammation causes pressure in your head, head, and that pressure leads to decreased blood flow. Well, if you have chronic inflammation, like you have a chronic inflammation in your joint or anything like else like that, your body starts like uh, protecting against this chronic inflammation, and you kind of start walling all this off. In your joints, you do you tend to do it with calcium, and that's what bone spurs are. It's just calcified tendons um, and ligaments. And what, if you 
it's like rock candy. If if you get that mobility back and start moving and get rid of inflammation, you can break all that calcium off. That is kind of the conundrum of arthritis, right? You've got to continue to move through. Right, right. I I was at at Kona, uh, and uh, there's this guy who's, I want to say he's like 84 years old, and he's done, I think he's done Kona like every year except one year because he was sick. Full Ironman. Full Ironman. 84 years old. And uh, and th- there was an interview in the paper, and they said, um, so d- "Don't your don't your knees wear out?" He said, "No, hell no, my I use them every day." <laughs> and and uh, you know, he thought it was the strangest question. Like I get, I, get, I use them so much they can't break down. You know, like, like why would they? Why would they? Like get, why would they get old on me? Yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. So and anyway, um, when you. Uh, when you have inflammation in the brain, that starts, uh, uh, you know, that starts walling it off and you put like protective proteins in there, which are actually sort of damaging. Um, and you actually decrease permanently regions of blood flow to the brain and you just start changing the neurochemistry of the brain <clears throat> and you can actually damage the pituitary stalk as well. Um, which is really more common with the types of, um, concussions that football players and pugilists get um like military gets where a, is the pu- pituitary it's basically right right between your eyes this way and just like a little behind your eyes okay. like kind of right over the, maybe the palate of your mouth so like right back there you oh, know, yeah it totally makes sense yeah yeah that's so where if, all the damage comes and it actually it's um yeah from from the profile it, it you know kind of looks like testicles you know <laughs> sure um and it, so but there's this little gap in the brain where the stalk comes down and then you have this bulb at, sort of at the bottom and you have a an anterior and a posterior that you know secrete different um uh hormones but they're usually hormone releasing factors um and if you rattle that enough because it's inside of a little bony cave um i think it's, I think it's called the celluloturcica uh Turkish saddle uh, and it, it's like this little bony structure, but it has this stalk. And so when it beats back and forth, you can actually inflame that stalk. And now when your brain senses right above that, it starts, it senses how many hormones you have. And then there's a response that tells the pituitary what to do. Well, if that's all inflamed and you're affecting blood flow to that, then you don't get that. And the pituitary then signals to the gonads to release testosterone. Right. So, um, so LH and FSH um, are the gonadal uh, pre-hormones. Luteinizing so hormone. Luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone. So in men, uh, the luteinizing hormone lead to the release of testosterone and the follicular stimulating hormones will lead to te- uh, sperm production. So uh, f- women have the same thing. Um, their ovaries, ovaries and testicles are exactly the same organ. It's just during embryogenesis, the the in the male those ovaries slip out of the body into an ugly little sack and and those are <laughs> testicles and if they stay up in there they, you know they're ovaries uh, but they really have the same responses to the fsh and lsh and that's how you know if a woman is uh, menopausal is you can look at her fsh and you know it goes it goes off the charts essentially once her ovaries quit producing ovums you know uh, fertilizable eggs and um and menstruating and, and their estrogen levels obviously go down Guys, we'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But first, we have a little bit of breaking news. This important PSA is brought to you by Manscaped.com. This is your pubic service announcement. Wait, 
It's a public service and the pubic service announcement. After more than 18 months of research and development, the Manscaped engineering team has confirmed that they have successfully created the greatest ball hair trimmer that has ever existed. You men out there, you ladies out there looking for a gift for your men. Maintenance is key. The new trimmer was just released only moments ago. We are the first to confirm the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0 Manscaping Trimmer is now available for purchase. Don't miss out on this. Get 20% off in free shipping with the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V. And as always, your balls will thank you. Well, we'll get to the women and HRT acceptable ranges for men and i know like general acceptable ranges are different than somebody who's trying to be optimal right where do those fall when it comes to testosterone and i realize that it is its own ecosystem yeah it's like you can't just look at t and say take that number by itself right um well again like i was saying at the beginning it, it there's a complex of things to consider so you have you have testosterone itself um and like I said, testosterone can become estradiol and testosterone can become dihydrotestosterone. Um, and then DHEA is a precursor to testosterone. Um, and <clears throat> when, when you have, when you have hormones floating around the blood, they don't just float around by themselves by and large, almost everything in the blood is escorted by some sort of protein, a carrier protein. And for hormones, that's called sex hormone binding globulin. Uh, which just means that it's a protein that binds sex hormones. So you have to look at that number as well. So uh, a lot of a lot of places will do your total testosterone. And let's say, um, and let me give one caveat about the reference ranges. It, they used to call them normal ranges. <laughs> uh, they had nothing to do with normalcy. They were usual. And so uh, eventually they changed their wording around to okay. call them reference ranges. Uh, unfortunately, what a lot of labs will do is they will start, um, they, they will, they will look at their data and they will readjust their reference ranges based on the population that they have. So maybe every thousand or 10,000 labs they do, if the, if the natural set point seems to be lower then they lower the reference ranges to capture the usual, uh, which, you know, it's, it's then considered the normal when, when this all started, it started with Framingham data, and they they found normal ranges. So Framingham was like this little town in Massachusetts where nobody really moved in or out, and it was big enough to be statistically significant, um, but they had sort of a captured population, and they weren't doing anything about it. They were just testing their blood regularly. And when a new lab test came out, they kind of gave it to this whole area and then they just followed them just watched what happened and that's where the cholesterol numbers come from and that's where testosterone numbers come from and normal you know normal blood markers like red blood cells and hemoglobin hematocrit all comes from that um and so the inclusion criteria to be normal in in uh in framingham was you had to be 19 or older you had to have testicles and you had to be alive that was normal. It. That was normal. Yeah. <laughs> and so then they tested it and that's where they came up with normal for him. So everybody's kind of scrambling now to go, okay, well, you know, that's, that's usual maybe or that's okay. Or that's, uh, you're alive. It's frequent, uh, but that's not optimal. Like what's optimal. So I, I, I only say that to point out that 
we don't have really solid data to say this is what's optimal. Now, the, the ideal thing would be is if I knew what your hormones were like when you were 25 and you came to see me and you're 45 and I can go, oh, we'd go back to that. Let's match that up. Right. Um, that almost never happens, right? Um, so so word of advice, if you've got somebody in your life who may be 25, is go get them tested now. Yeah, Keep be, a backlog of your blood work and your numbers and kind of track it. Yeah, I mean, and I think it, everything will be a lot easier to find, yeah. you know, 20 years from now because, you know, electronic medical records and all that. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have a single medical document from my life, you know, pre- I don't know, 35 or 40 or something. And most people don't, uh, but I think the 25 year olds now will have all of that. They'll have everything. So, I th um, it, it, but it is probably worth asking for that test. Just say, Hey, I want to get my baseline so that when I'm 45 or 50, I know what I was like when I was 25. What about these ones that I'm seeing like advertised on Instagram and social media that you can get your blood work checked? Is that sufficient? I don't know what those are. Um, I haven't seen those. Okay. I don't really go on social media if I can help it. Good for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> wise man. Uh, but, you know, the, the the most important thing is to get the right markers. It, and it's not so much. Um, so so if, I, if I sent your lab, if I drew your blood right now and sent it out to three different labs, I'd get three different answers, right? Um, it won't be. It depends on how the, you know, what techniques they're using to study uh, to evaluate for whatever they're looking for. Um, and it depends on how long it's been sitting there and how much it is coagulated and the competence of the lab tech who's doing it. There's a lot of things. So it, they would be close. Uh, they, I mean, they should be, they should be relatively close, but a lot of them will use different techniques and a lot of them will have different reference ranges. So one would say, well, normal testosterone is between 250 and 1100 and you're 900. One would say well, normal testosterone is between 300 and 800 and you're high. And, yeah, and and all of that would would exist. So I I wouldn't. And the, and the thing is that it wouldn't really matter which lab you took as long as you stayed with that one. Okay. But if I do one lab now, three months from now, I use a different lab and they have a different reference range and a different technique. I'm not really comparing apples to apples. Okay. So what I the what I base mine off of is uh, the the chair of UCLA. Uh, the chair of endocrinology at UCLA, and uh, I always blank on his name. It, it's some, um, it's like a word. It's a letter salad. It's it's some crazy, <laughs> okay, some crazy <laughs> last name. I can't ever remember. Um, but people could look it up. It was um, I th he. I think he might still be the department, uh, the endocrine chair. Um, but it was in probably the 2005 range, somewhere around there. Um, he he published a study that was done, I think, between UCLA and Harvard. And what they did is they they measured uh, the testosterone of thousands of men, I think like 30,000 men or something like that. You, you looking it up? Any of these? Can you see? It's a, no, it's an older guy. And maybe he's... Maybe he, since he might moved be gone. on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I I wanted to say it was kind of like a yeah Germanic or something. Okay. Like it had a bunch. It had a bunch. I I can I'll send it to you. I, I not can, a lot of vowels. Not a lot of vowels. Yes. A, lot, <laughs> a few Y's and some X's. Maybe and a Z's Z, yeah. and like yeah, you know, some stuff like that. Um, 
And uh, anyway, what they did is they, they took the bell curve, of, and I want to say 30,000 is coming to mind. I haven't read that study in 20 years, 10 years, 15 years. Um, but uh, they took the bell curve, and then they just watched what happened to men. They weren't doing anything about it. And what they found over the course of 10 years or something like that, um, the if they broke the bell curve down into quintiles, so 20%, right? The people in the, the, the men who were in the top 20% or the, um, the first quintile, they had the lowest risk of any disease and the lowest risk of death from any cause. No kidding. And then every, and they had the highest testosterone. They had the highest testosterone. So they were all within normal limits. They were all within the reference ranges, but they were the top 20% of everybody that they tested. Okay. Right? And then the next group down, you go down 20%, they, their risk doubled. And Cardiovascular disease. Every, every disease. Yeah, everything. Yeah. Uh, so it's called morbidity mortality, like okay. indices for that. It's like what, um, so they were two times more likely to die than the first quintile. And they're two times like more likely to have diabetes or, you know, have a stroke or any kind of disease that you can think of, uh, rheumatoid, <laughs> rheumatoid arthritis, yes. like anything autoimmune, anything like that. So they were twice as likely. You go down another quintile, they were twice as likely as the one before that. So now they're four times more than the first one. Wow. You go to another quintile and now they're twice as much, they're eight times more likely to have any disease or die from any cause. All cause mortality. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, well, if that doesn't close the door on this, I don't know what does. And so that's always been my, my approach is to stay up when I'm looking at testosterone now. Yeah. Cause you're not, we're not talking about putting somebody on bodybuilding levels right. of testosterone right. and, and, and that, hormones that, that needs are going to, gonna, be, no, you're not going to turn into Dorian Yates. Right. Just because you're getting hormone replacement therapy. Right. And you, and you're not going to turn into Dorian Yates no matter how much you take. <laughs> it doesn't matter. That's true. <laughs> that's another thing people don't understand. But uh, what, what's really important to understand is the, you know, the difference between hormone replacement therapy and taking steroids, as it's commonly referred to. It, it's all in the dose, right? Toxicity is all in the dose. Yes. And so... With everything. Right. So, the, so yeah. So, the difference... The, it's a complete it's a conceptually completely different thing so what what you're doing as a as an athlete or especially a bodybuilder or maybe a power strength athlete <clears throat> is you're trying to have a higher level of testosterone than you would have ever been able to achieve on your own when you're doing hormone replacement therapy we're trying to give you what you would be able to produce optimally so um and in effect, lower all-cause mortality. Right. And we can't say that's true because that study hasn't been done, but it's very likely to be true. I mean, it makes a lot of sense sure. cognitively. Uh, it creates very little cognitive dissonance in me to say, well, I think that if I have youthful hormones, I'm more likely to perform as though I'm youthful. Which is the great fear, I think, of people when they're thinking about hormone <laughs> replacement therapy is that, oh, I'm going to give myself cancer. Or I'm going to give right. myself a heart attack. Or you see like the Lou Ferrigno's of the world that end up passing, not Lou Ferrigno's, uh, one of the football players that played Lyle for the Alzado. Lyle Alzado's of the world that you're thinking about that kind of. Yeah, he blamed his brain tumor on, on testosterone. Right. Yeah, so yeah. And then in the public <laughs> – you just hear these little snippets and you don't really understand how complex the system is and you right. don't understand the studies that have gone into it. So I guess the question 
when you're thinking about this, it's like, should I get on it? And should I not is maybe if you're not in the first 20 percentile yeah. of that is the risk of not being on hormone replacement therapy greater than being the risk of being on hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. I mean, and you know, in my argument, and again, there, uh, you know, when, when I say this stuff, I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm speaking from a layman's standpoint, but, um, you know, if there were scientific evidence to say, I would, you know, that this study has been done, then I would say, here's the proof. The studies are never going to be done. It's too expensive. And, and who's going to pay for it, right? The pharmaceutical industry, right. not going to pay for it. So who's, who's going to pay for the study? What's anybody's motivation to study it other than the intellectual curiosity of finding it? And then that answer will just get buried because it's, there's a lot of social stigma around That's right. hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the, that bell curve, you look at that study and go, okay, well, this is my lowest risk of disease and death. Um, and they will find healthcare practitioners and specifically doctors, probably more than anybody who will tell you, oh, that, you know, you're risking cancer, you're risking, you know, whatever, uh, yeah, uh, for a lot of, for a long time, they were saying that, um, testosterone was associated with prostate cancer. Um, and if you give people testosterone, you give them prostate cancer. It turns out to be exactly the opposite. The people who have prostate cancer almost always have the lowest levels of testosterone, and the highest levels of estrogen. Um, and it makes sense, right? And so to that argument as to whether or not um, whether or not there's danger to using hormone replacement therapy and making yourself physiologically 25 years old again, is that dangerous? Well, is it dangerous to be 25 years old, right? Are you healthier when you're 25? Or are you healthier when you're 50? Well, I'd like to do 25 all over. Right. So if you could, if you could stay physiologically 25, why wouldn't you? And if and if having high testosterone levels led to prostate cancer, why don't 25 year olds have prostate cancer? Why do 70 year olds have prostate cancer? Right. So it doesn't logically make sense. And then the studies have been done. In fact, Edward Lichten, the guy I studied with, he did a study um, at University of Michigan, and uh, and essentially proved that theory, like straight out is that every prostate cancer patient they had had the lowest levels of testosterone and the highest levels of estradiol. What happens though is because of the type of tissue that it is, that is an androgen receptive tumor quite frequently. And by that, I mean, maybe 15% of the time. So if somebody has undetected prostate cancer and you give them an androgen like testosterone, you expose that cancer because now you've kind of fueled that thing and now they're going to be able to detect it. And that's why they thought that it caused prostate cancer. It's because it was revealing cancers that already existed, but were too low. But it's not causal. It's not causal. Gotcha. And if anything, it's the opposite. And, and it's, that's turning out to be true for women with breast cancer as well. Right. Because it, um, you know, there are estrogen sensitive breast tumors and therefore when they have a lot of estrogen around, that tumor grows. Um, but if estrogen caused breast cancer, then young women should have breast cancer more frequently than old women. Right. Do, right. And yeah. Then, so let's, let's get into that. Cause I know for females and you talked about the doctor you studied under working for a long time, almost exclusively with females, hormone therapy used to be very common, but then it did go out of rage because of that because of the concern of yeah the women, causing breast cancer which you've talked about the women's healthcare initiative which was the worst study that has ever been done um and had the largest negative impact on society of anything that i'm aware of 
and what happened with that study uh, it was it was uh, i think it was the it was the nurses trial is what it was called um and or no maybe the nurses trial was the precursor to this but it's the women's healthcare initiative and and they they tracked all these women and they came up with this uh they came up with, with this soundbite that estrogen replacement therapy specifically um caused breast cancer and everybody was like oh my gosh that's you know and it scared i think 50 percent of the women in america on hormone replacement therapy went off immediately within the first three months because you can't get that out of your head right and so and everyone believed it well what happened was the company sponsoring this was wyeth and they had they produced a product called Primpro, and uh it was it was uh, Primarin, which is horse urine. It was, it's like a, a pregnant horse. They distill the estrogen essentially out of that horse's urine. And then Provera, which was a, a uh, progesterone ag- uh, analog. So it's, it's a chemical that kind of looks like progesterone, and it has progesterone-like effects in your body. Well, it was made out of petroleum. And it was banned in every country in the entire world <laughs> except America and france I oh think, yeah or maybe french canadian or like something and so they did this they did this study and that was that was the research arm it was the primpro now what they found is that there was an increased risk of cancer in that group and specific specifically breast cancer but it was all cancers increased but you know that's when they really scared people with well it turns out the reason it was banned everywhere is because everyone knew Everyone knew that it was carcinogenic, and no one, and that's why no one had. That's why petroleum. It's in a petroleum-based product that you're that you're putting in your body. Now there was two years after that trial, and they actually stopped that trial and put this out as like an urgent healthcare report. Like, you know, this is what we found, and it was becoming too dangerous to keep the trial going. So they stopped. They stopped the trial and let this out, and everybody jumped off. About two years later they released the control arm, which was just Primarin. And this was just horse, just distilled horse urine. And now we can obviously, we can do bioidentical. We can basically take a beaker and we can make the exact hormone that your body is going to make. And we can make it in an enzymatic reaction. It can, we can grow it really fast and then we can, you know, distill it. And it's perfect. And it, it looks just, um, but the Primarin, you know, that whatever, that was as close as we had in this day. That was, you know, equine urine distillation. And that arm actually had lower cancer rates than everybody else nobody said anything about it didn't get any publicity whatsoever and then uh right around that same time there had been you know dozens of researchers who had gone back through the research trial and looked at it for errors and they'd all come up with this same thing well you know it was the Provera that was causing this. And, you know, also the way you did your statistics here was a little wonky. You know, you were actually, you know, reporting, you're, you're reporting this in an inverted manner. So, um, and, and I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was like, uh, I don't know. So, so let, let's say that there were five, you know, five people out of every thousand or five people out of every 10,000 had cancer. I, I didn't, like I'm making that number up. And, and then they say, in, in, uh, yeah, so five, five out of every 10,000 have cancer. And now you say, well, it went from five to six, right? And you go, okay, well, you know, what, what's one, 
what's one more out of 10,000? 10, that doesn't seem like that big of a jump. But then they say, oh, no, it's 20%, right? Because it's one, yeah, it's you're one out of five. You're adding increase. The, yes. Right. So they came out with some ridiculous number, like it was 25 or 30% right. more likely. But when you Which look is back, really common, by the it, way. Yeah, and it was like two out of every, you know, two more out of every 100,000, but it decreased heart attacks by more than that. So like overall, if you took that total cohort, you were still less likely to die. Um, but anyway, it was, it was a very poorly done trial. Um, lots, there's been lots of retractions of the various information in there published, but it, nothing gets the attention that the sensationalistic initial drop gets. One of the common statistical things too, to be able to do is like the magic hand is to go a 20 or 30% increase or a 20 or 30% decrease. I mean, right. that's like the easiest thing you could do. And people just see the numbers and it's like, whoa, but you're talking yeah, I mean, in, in, five to six out of 10,000. I mean, not that those were the given numbers, but that's very common. It's very common. You have to know what the denominator is. And you know, the, the, the media is, very, oh, they're brilliant. Very prone to not giving you a denominator. Like they'll say, you know, if it fits their agenda, you know, they'll say, uh, you know, whatever, lightning strikes have doubled this year. Two people got hit instead of one. Right. <laughs> yeah. if, you look over, look out. if you look over the course of 20 years, it's like it averages out to one a year. Sure. But this year it was two. And yeah. Last year it was zero. And like, oh, it's, you know. Yeah, stick around. We'll give you the whole story later. <laughs> right. What age should women start thinking about hormone therapy? Um, or what's a common range? I, I, I think for women, I would, I would start looking. And, and so when I say hormone uh, therapy, I'm not necessarily talking about hormone replacement therapy. Okay. So like for men, and we didn't really get into this, but uh, for men, uh, a lot of times I'll just do, uh, I can give them supplements that will decrease the amount of estrogen that okay. they're converting to. And you can give them, you would start there. I would start there for younger men. Okay. If I believed that I'd be able to get them into that first quintile without giving them hormones. Okay. Now women. So when I say hormone replacement therapy, I'm talking about all of that, like any okay. intervention to kind of get them in the, in the top. Um, because even a 45 year old man, a lot of the times I can, I can give him other pharmaceuticals that will cause his body to produce more testosterone and I can, um, and I can block his conversion to estrogen and I can block his conversion to dihydrotestosterone and I can get him up into that top okay. 20%. And another thing I, I, I never answered your question very well, but, um, there, there are a lot of things to look at and. I'm using total testosterone as a simple way to talk about this. I'm much more concerned with free testosterone yes. than I am total. And that's what Because that's the active portion. That's the active portion. And the other is bound to these um, sex hormone binding globulins I was talking about, these proteins that don't let – it irreversibly binds. So if testosterone binds to that, it goes to your liver, it all gets chopped up and made into other stuff, and you don't get that testosterone oh, gotcha. molecule anymore. So if you have a lot of sex hormone binding globulin, it doesn't matter what your total is because your free could still suck, right? Um, so you, you could have a total of 1,000 and only have like 1% free instead of 3% free, and you're still low, right? Um, so in women, women start losing testosterone at about 35 years old. That's it's, uh, one of sort of one of the markers for that is cellulite um, because testosterone sets neuromuscular tension. And so like the little attachments between your skin and your, and your muscle um, actually have like a little contractile tone into that. And as some of those lengthen out, that skin pops away and the other, you know, the other attachments, which is, it's, is more fascial and you know, doesn't have any sort of uh, uh, tensing uh, material in it. Right. Um, th those will, 
and it's the opposite of goosebumps, right? And so what happens is that stays in place and everything around it relaxes and it causes a little fat dimple there. Oh. Like you didn't actually gain any fat. You just released the tension between your skin and the fascia beneath it. And then goosebumps are the opposite is everything everything sucks down and the one thing that stays up is kind of the little goosebumps. Yes. Bit. So um that you know, that's just uh anecdotal observation. I wouldn't base it on, hey, I have cellulite. I have sure, but it's something to think about. But so women... Uh, we used to, like, and this is a weird thing, but guys in the locker room, and me being one of them, had little dimples on my butt. It's right. Like, and right. Not, not surprisingly, when you go look at the numbers, like, right. dude. Right, exactly. And funny, my strength coach used to always be like, he would say my hips look like I had a lot of estrogen. He's yeah. like, you got a lot of estrogen. Right, right, I was like, right. yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the for the for the women, I would say uh, the, it it tends to be around somewhere around thirty five years old as they start running into uh, a decrease in testosterone because women's ovaries are actually where their testosterone comes from, but it's also where their estrogen comes from. So there's this enzyme in in men; it's in our subcutaneous fat. So the fat that's on the outside of our muscles. Under the skin. Yeah. So under the skin. So what you see when you see a fat person. Yeah. And that has an enzyme in it called aromatase, which converts testosterone into estrogen. And so the fatter you are, this is Mother Nature's big joke, right? The, the, the fatter you are, the more aromatase you have, which means more of your testosterone is going to become estrogen, which means you're going to get even fatter. What a catch-22 that is. And it gets even worse because the brain has very few testosterone receptors, and the hypothalamus is the region that reads how many hormones you have in your – like how much of a hormone you have in your blood. You're, the true sensor in your brain for how much testosterone you have is how much estrogen you have, and men too. So – when you have a lot of fat producing a lot of estrogen and that estrogen is in your bloodstream going to your brain, your, your hypothalamus is going, Oh, we have a ton of, we must have a ton of testosterone because we have a ton of estrogen. So we're not going to, we don't need to release any more luteinizing hormone to make the testicles make more testosterone because we have all this estrogen or obviously high. And so it's a self-propagating downward spiral for women. It's similar, but they're, they have an in the aromatase enzyme is in the tissue that, that, uh, encases their ovaries. So as their ovaries produce testosterone, it, becomes estrogen and by the time it gets in their bloodstream except for when they're really young their ovaries produce more than the than that can you know than that tissue around it can convert and that's what leads to sort of their residual testosterone in their system well if you understand that that's the mechanism of that they're getting testosterone is basically producing more testosterone than their enzymes can convert as soon as they drop a little bit what like what's the first thing they're losing they're losing testosterone and they're going to have good te they're still going to have good estrogen levels for another 10 or 15 years probably but their testosterone goes out the window right away and again not necessarily they don't necessarily need like a testosterone cream or something but they might but you know a lot of times you can improve that with something like dihydro or um uh, something like dhea you can give a right. supplement of that uh, that converts to testosterone you can block a little bit of testosterone conversion with zinc and, you know, sometimes you give that to a woman and that's all she needs and she'll, you know, her testosterone again, I, I go for in males or females, my, my protocol is always to reach for that upper quintile, that upper 20 to 25% of everything anabolic and the lower 20 to 25% of anything catabolic. And that, that's, yeah, that keeps you in the safe range. Yeah. And that, that just really puts you, you know. That's what a 25-year-old would look like if they came into my clinic. How much does it help with perimenopause and regular menopause? Um, so the 
the, the biggest complaints from menopause is um, the hot flashes. Yes. And the hot flashes, that's, that's actually caused by a luteal surge. So that's when, you're, when your um, pituitary is secreting out a lot of luteinizing hormone to try to get your ovaries to produce more estrogen. That's what's causing the hot flashes. Now, the only way that I'm aware of to prevent that luteal surge from happening is to have enough estrogen in your system to where that luteal surge doesn't happen. Um, and, you know, it feeds back to the brain that there's plenty of estrogen, like we we're talking about in the example right. of men, there's plenty of estrogen. So your, your hypothalamus doesn't tell your pituitary to secrete a bunch of luteinizing hormone. As far as I know, there's no other way to block the hot flash to get, you know, to block that luteal surge. Now, not every woman obviously responds to the luteal surge the same way. Um, so some women have that surge and it doesn't cause them to get hot flashes. You know, so what are their true symptoms of menopause other than feeling older, right? And older is just slower, fatter, dumber, and colder, which is, <laughs> which is really just hormones. It's really, it's really poor sleep and, and poor hormones. And that goes for men and women. That's men and women. Slower, fatter, dumber, colder. Yeah. I like that. I mean, that's really, that's really what we're saying, right? Yeah. When we're, we're getting older, it's like. That's right. Um, and, and, you know. Not to get off topic, but there's a really strong correlation with when people start sleeping poorly and when people start accelerating their aging process. So that that happens hand in hand around 60 years old. Which one's the chicken? Which one's the egg? Yeah, with know. hormones and sleep. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure it's. I mean, it, but when, it is that when, kind when of we, question. Yeah, right? when we studied it in the when we studied it in the military, we found an almost perfect correlation in men with total testosterone and time of sleep. Meaning that if they had high testosterone levels, they slept well. If they had low testosterone levels, they slept poorly. If we took away their sleep, their testosterone went low. If we gave them more sleep, their testosterone went up. And it wasn't a one-to-one. But, it was but there like, wasn't it a was way. like 0.87 or 0.82 to 1 or something like that. And so there wasn't a way in the military because <laughs> yeah, the same guys thing. are tested as yeah. you can't and that's give all, them. It's all banned as right. well. So, um, uh, yeah, and. And to finish off that one thought that we never got to, that reminds me is, um, you know, when when men get uh, when men get hormone replacement therapy, they're shooting to get the twenty five year old kind of range, right? That sort of sweet spot in the top twenty percent. Well, testicle, you know, the average male's testicles will produce between seventy five and one hundred and twenty five milligrams in a week, um, and that's being pulsatile. I mean, most of it's secreted while you're asleep. Most of it's secreted during deep sleep, but there's some pulsatile secretions during the day and you can exercise and change that a little okay. bit. Um, so, you know, let's go to the upper limit, 125 milligrams. Well, how many people do 125 milligrams a week? Almost no one. You go to these testosterone clinics, they're giving you at least 200 milligrams a week, sometimes three or 400 milligrams a week. Now you're getting to the testosterone uh, replacement that that bodybuilders and athletes are doing, okay. you're going super physiologic. You're going outside of the normal range. And there's a big expense to that. And there's in fact a big expense to physiological just, expense. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. And there's in fact a, a big expense to just doing weekly, uh, weekly injections. So if you think about it, um, you know, let's say, uh, the hundred, uh, you know, 125 is, is roughly like 17 milligrams per day that your testicles are producing over the course of seven days. Well, if you take 200 all at once, what do you think your overall level would be if I tested you right then? 200. 
No, that that's just two hundred. That's how many milligrams oh, gotcha. are going into your skin. But if I looked at oh, it, it's, it's, me- it's measured in nanograms per deciliter. So how much testosterone would you have floating around your blood? It'd probably be like two thousand yeah. uh, with a normal reference range of being a thousand at the top, right? My, maybe even three thousand. Like it would be super high. Well, you have receptors for that testosterone. It you know they they can cross through the membranes of the cells because they're they're fat soluble, they're lipids, right? So they can cross through the membranes, but they still need a receptor inside the cell to be able to do their work at the nucleus. Is they affect transcription of DNA, and if you lose androgen receptors, we we can call them testosterone receptors. They're called androgen, but if you lose the receptor for testosterone, then it doesn't matter how much testosterone you have because you can't use it, right? Just like if you have a lot of those binding globulins, you can't use it either. Right. So. You either have so many of these binders that you can't use it, or you don't have any of the keyholes that the key fits, and, okay. it, and it doesn't work whatsoever. So what happens anytime you give your anytime you give anybody an excess of any kind of hormone or an excess of just about anything, the receptors for that substrate for that chemical um, that you're giving those receptors start decreasing because your body's a very efficient machine. This is how this is how people uh, end up with diabetes, right? It's their insulin sensitivity goes down. The number of insulin receptors go away because there's so much glucose around all the time. They're overtaxed. Right. They're just overtaxed. And so now they have all this glucose, which leads to all this insulin. And so there's just so much insulin around all the time. Your body just doesn't produce as many receptors. And the same thing happens with testosterone. So if I give somebody 200 milligrams, well, their blood's going to see for a couple of days, like a super physiologic, way more than they could ever produce. And it's going to be saturating all these receptors and and your body's going to be like, well, I don't need to make all those receptors. There's all this, there's all this testosterone around. I only need one receptor to get all I need. I don't need to produce a hundred of them. So now you start down-regulating the number of receptors that you have. And so you're super high for a couple of days. And after you've done this for, you know, several months, maybe six months, probably your testicles aren't producing any significant amount of testosterone. So you're dependent a hundred percent on the shot. So you're giving yourself the shot and you're going way higher than you should be for a couple of days. Then you're going down in the next couple of days to probably about where you should be. And then you're going down after that, a couple of days to lower than you should be. And then you give yourself another shot. And then you give this self these big sinusoidal curves like this. Well, if you decrease all the androgen receptors and I give you this huge bolus, now you have 300% more testosterone than you need, than you would ordinarily have. Right. But your receptors are down to a third. Well, now you're normal. It's for one to the one. first two for days. The first little bit, and then the next two days you're low, oh, and the yeah. next two days you're even lower. Diminishing and then, <laughs> returns. And then you're gonna. And this is why people start at these clinics. Like we were saying at the very beginning, they start at these clinics. Oh, I feel so much better. And then it kind of plateaus, and then it kind of like right. gets a little worse over time. And they're like, yeah, I guess I feel better. And then it's not any kind of sensation. But if they go off of it, whoa. They're so screwed now, right? Because now if they go off of it, even if they could get the testosterone production that they had before, which is unlikely, but if they could get their testicular function right back to where it was, if they only have a third of the receptors, they're only essentially getting 30% of what they started with. So now they're way worse off and they're just going to stay on it forever. And I, I mean, I counsel my patients very heavily that if, if you want to go on testosterone replacement therapy, you're like you're making a lifestyle commitment to basically the rest of your For life. A long time. You're going to do yeah. this. Uh, as, lo- as long as you want to feel healthy and good, I mean, you're going to have to do this. Once you start on this, it's 
it's almost impossible to come off. So most of my, I mean, the vast majority of my clients have already exhausted everything else before they get on hormone replacement therapy. Right. So like we started with over-the-counter supplement, supplements and we got them up there and maybe held them there for five years and then that wasn't working. And then I started giving them, you know, things like clomiphene, which will cause your body to sort of, you know, produce more testosterone or HCG that will cause your testicles to make more testosterone. And then you give them a pharmaceutical to block the production of estrogen and so they have more testosterone and so now that we can you know do another five or ten years we can keep them up there without that and now maybe they're 50 55 60 and they're like this just isn't working for me anymore and all right now that's the time to go on testosterone replacement therapy but i have my clients do an injection every other day to try to reduce that huge spike small injection small injection so they're only they're only taking like 120 milligrams over the course of a week which is physiologically normal uh, but they're but they're doing 30 milligrams every every other day gotcha uh, 30 to 40 depending on the person but yeah so it's somewhere right around 100 milligrams a week and with that they that will get people into that usually the upper 10 percent of of the reference range and that in w- once you're up in that upper range and I'm monitoring their estrogen and making sure that's not going up and I'm monitoring monitoring their DHT and making sure that's not going up and I'm monitoring their DHEA and making sure that they're still making all the precursors on the way to testosterone that are metabolically active. And now I've got the whole thing I've got the whole thing covered and after you know a year of that and people you know completely transform themselves and they're feeling better every day for a year. And how often are you checking the blood? Um, when I first start, if somebody's complex, I would, I would maybe do every month for three or four months. Um, but most, most people, most of my clients, I get a really healthy people. Um, and so I, I usually just give them about a month. I'll test them after a month and make sure that we're in the ballpark and we might adjust it slightly. And then I'll test them quarterly for the first year and then every six months for, the remainder of the time they're with me. Give me a little bit about over-the-counter supplements. I mean, we see them advertised all the time on television. Every time you open up a magazine on a plane or something, there's advertisements for over-the-counter T-boosters, whatever, accelerators. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's all sorts. Da- are they dangerous? Um, the chemicals, uh, the the supplement themselves, the supplement themselves – most likely are not dangerous. Um, there, being a guy who owns a supplement company, I can speak <laughs> with some experience as to as to how the supplement industry works. Um, and so, when you look at uh, things like that, you would find in a in a bodybuilding type magazine. Um, regardless of how many company names you see in there, by and large, there's like three or four companies doing all of that. Everything's and, white labeled. Well. Not even that they're they're producing a they're producing a product that's maybe slippery to produce, and then as soon as the FDA starts cracking down on that, they implode that company. And they start another company. It's all the same people, and they oh. it's the next substrate, the next substrate, the next precursor to testosterone, the next you know pota- possible adaptogen or secretagogue, and like they just keep you know finding and, and you know there's a million. It's just an infinite game of cat and mouse because there's so many things that affect your physiology and the way they want it to. They're just going to keep coming out with new compounds. Unfortunately, um, that doesn't show a whole lot of ethical responsibility. Right. Right. Um, but, and so those companies also tend to, to buy really 
crappy ingredients. So they buy stuff from China, which a lot of the supplements come from China. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're bad, but you have to really test those. And what usually happens is they test them for, does it have the compound that it's supposed to have in there? They don't test it or does it have heavy metals in it? Does it have arsenic? Does it have like, you know, how many, how many pollutants and uh, endocrine disruptors does it have? Most people don't test for that unless they're a pretty high end supplement company or just a really ethical small company. Right. Um, so if you have, you know, a company that's just reproducing the next subsidiary of fly by night industries every, you know, six months, I, I wouldn't trust that very much. So at, so the, the shorter answer is if you, if you can find something from, you know, Thorne or, you know, you know, some, some big company like that, that, that you can think of like, um, that's reputable. That's been around yeah, a long time. Yeah, that's been around for a long time. That's not if, playing that cat and mouse yeah, game. If they have some, if they have something that's you know postulated to postulated to affect your testosterone level, I, I would I would say try that. If it really worked, it would probably be a drug. To gotcha. be honest, yeah. I'd probably it'd probably be a controlled substance if it worked really well. I mean, I'm not saying that it wouldn't work at all. That's the FDA's job, right? It's the FDA's job to say, well, that's that's actually a drug at this point, right? Um, and they and they can assign drug status to stuff that shouldn't be drugs. And I'm not a big fan of, of their games right. either. But you know, if if you go to something like you know Natural Sources or you know or Thorn or you know, uh, um, even the Life Extension brand, like uh, all these people that have been around for thirty or forty years, and they they are very reputable. I would, I would say it's worth trying, but I wouldn't I wouldn't base it on how you feel just because of the placebo effect. You know, I would I would get labs, and yeah, you know, go in there. like if you're trying to boost your testosterone, go see what. You're t- Go see know what your what testosterone is, yes, and then take your supplements for a month, and then go see what it is again. And if there's no change, believe that. Just say, okay, well, I got marketed, and yeah, you know, their marketers are brilliant. They <laughs> they're yeah, they very are. good at convincing you stuff that uh, they want you to believe. Last one, because I know a lot of people want to know this. To do it right, yeah, is it expensive? No, no, no. Um, the doctor's time might be expensive depending on who you go to. Okay. Um, but the supplement or the hormones themselves, I mean, I think I want to say a vial of testosterone, um, which would be, uh, you know, 2000 milligrams in a vial, 200 milligrams per ml. So 2000 milligrams in a vial, if you're taking hundred milligrams a week, it's every two weeks is 200. So it'd be 20 weeks. And that's like, I don't know couple hundred bucks for a vial of testosterone um the aromatase inhibitors are maybe a dollar a week two dollars a week something like that um dhea is an over-the-counter supplement um if you end up needing something to block uh your conversion to dht that if you're a man that's going to be covered under insurance if you have insurance anyway but it's still it's still a it's an off uh off patent drug uh same thing people use for hair loss and whatever uh, right it's the same same drug um and that's dirt cheap as well i mean you you could literally do it for the the cost of the pharmaceuticals are probably less significantly less than 200 dollars a month maybe less than 100 dollars a month where can people learn more about you and sleep remedy docparsley.com doc parsley thanks so much that Thank was you. awesome all right thanks